Hey, Cape Christian, how are you doing? So great to be with you this weekend. I am so excited because we are going to start a brand new series that we've been prepping for a long time called Thy Kingdom Come. But before we do that, I just want to take a minute, a quick minute, and address that we are filming this on Halloween weekend 2020, the weekend before the election. And so I want to just say a couple things as your pastor before we dive into this. And by the way, the message and the series is going to cover a lot of this, but there's so much tension and angst and division in our country. And I just want to be reminded for those of us who are Jesus followers, who've said yes to following Jesus, that, that we have a biblical responsibility to pray, to pray for our country, to pray for our leaders. And I just want to remind you of a couple things, and we're going to pray in a minute, but I want to remind us that, that as this might be as important of an election as any, that regardless of who wins this election, that God can still build his kingdom. In fact, he wants to that he's still on the throne, that this election hasn't knocked him off his throne, that he's still good, and that we still want people to know Jesus, that God still wants people to know Jesus, and he has an ability to do that regardless of who wins. We ha God hasn't lost his power or his authority, and we have to make sure that we haven't put the government in God's seat, that we aren't trusting and relying too much on the government and not enough on God. It's a great opportunity for us to be reminded this week that Jesus was more interested in people than he was even politics. And so if the contentment of our heart or the hope in our heart is more on a, on, on a party or a candidate who wins than who sits on the throne in heaven, then maybe the person who holds the rule of our heart is a little bit off base. And so I want to just start by praying, and I want to lead us in a prayer for this election, but for our country. Because whether this goes the right way or the wrong way in your mind, God is still on the throne. He's still in charge. He knows what's happening, and he still can build his kingdom and reach people, and he's asking you to be a part of that. So let's engage into that, not just this moment, but over the next few days as the election comes and, and as the results come in. Join me if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible democracy nation that you've put us in. And God, we, we acknowledge and lean into your word that says that we are to pray for our nation, to pray for our leaders. And so God, we pray for every leader. We pray for teachers. We pray for, for first responders. We pray for government leaders. We pray for pastors. We pray for leaders, God, that we would lead in a way that would honor you, that we would take the power and authority that you have given us and we would exercise it in a way that uses it on behalf of people who don't get to experience life the way you would want it. God, we pray that your sovereignty would be leaned upon. God, that our hope would remain in you, Jesus. And God, that you, would, that you would be able to rise up your church and that you would be able to rise up hope regardless of the, the outcome of this election. And God, I thank you for reminding us that, that you are our hope, that we are not members of this country first, but we are members in your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that we as your church would be a light in this divisive time, that we would be um, an example of love, even maybe where we don't get our way or where we agree. God, use us as your example, as your ambassadors, as your mediators in this. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I do believe that this is as important a time as any to be reminded of what it means to be a Christian or a, a Jesus follower. As I just mentioned, we're going, to, um, we're going to start what I would say is probably one of the most important series that I've ever done in the three years here. And, and it's important because I think it'll shape how you understand everything throughout the Bible. Um, often, I think we, meaning well, we use the Bible to support our position. We take short paragraphs or sentences or phrases, and, and we use them without having the narrative of the storyline of the whole Bible, because the Bible is one big, long story. And when you understand that storyline, a lot of other things make sense. And so too often, 
uh, in my opinion, quotations are ripped out of context too often. They are used to mean something that the author actually never, ever meant. And, and one of my concerns as a, as a, as a spiritual leader in, in, in this country and in our community is that, that I'm concerned that sometimes we're actually not really listening to the Bible, but we're using the Bible. And so I want to invite us the next four weeks to listen to the Bible and that we would listen to it rather than use it. I think sometimes we use the Bible when it's convenient and we ignore the parts we don't agree with or when it's not. But I believe if you stick with us that you're going to come away with a really solid understanding of the narrative of the Bible. And so we're going to dive deep into the, what the Bible says, what it means, how it has an effect and an impact on us. Um, we're going to address terms like politics, righteousness, justice, wickedness, but we're going to look at them from a strictly biblical perspective. I'm inviting you into, to, to take on a biblical worldview, maybe for the first time or more than you have now. And then we're going to ask good questions like, what does this mean for us here and now? What I'm not going to do is tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Um, and I want us to answer this question as we begin. Am, am I interested? Am I really interested in understanding what the Bible says and means? Or am I really just looking for something else that kind of fits my current personal beliefs. I want to know what the Bible says, and I want it to speak to me when I get out of alignment. And I'm assuming that you are the same way. So we're calling this series, Thy Kingdom Come. It's a common phrase, but we're going to ask some questions. We're going to, it's going to force us to ask questions like, what is the kingdom of heaven? How does it affect my life? What does the Bible have to say about politics? What does the Bible say about justice? What is biblical justice? How do we achieve it? Do I play a part in it? And perhaps, what if my candidate doesn't win the election on Tuesday? What do I do then? And so we're going to start this series by, the more I continue to study the Bible through the historical lens, what I would call one of the most pivotal, revolutionary, crucial, misunderstood, yet important statements that's, that was ever written in the Bible that Jesus ever made. He has lived his life. He's fulfilled all the prophecies, and he's being accused of claiming to be the Son of God. His own people, the Jews, have handed him over to the Roman government, a, a tyrannical, oppressive government, uh, superpower, way more than we could ever imagine. And Jesus has the opportunity to speak on behalf of his own life, to give an account to maybe get himself out of trouble. And he's standing before the governor, this man named Pontius Pilate, and he says these words, and, and, and these words should, um, should drive us every day we're on this planet that we follow Jesus. He says this in John 18. This is what he says in defense of himself. Basically, Pilate's like, what do you have to say for yourself? And he says this. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That is, I think, one of the most loaded we could dig forever and not mine all the depths and, 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 and meaning of that statement when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He's, there was a prophecy in Isaiah that said the government would rest on his shoulders one day. He was going to reestablish the kingdom. And so it brought all kinds of disappointment and confusion when he said this in the context. But for the last 2,000 years, we've seen what this unfolds. And so what he's really doing is he's talking about, when he says his kingdom, he's talking about my system, our way of living is different than anything this world has to offer. And he's actually referencing the very beginning of the story. He goes on and says, if it were, if my kingdom were of this world, he basically says, I would go about things the way everybody else goes about things. My servants would fight to prevent my arrest and the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. He's saying, I have, I'm up to something else. 
Another really important scripture that he prayed at the beginning of his ministry. Let's rewind three years. Jesus has just been baptized. He goes up to speak uh, on, on a mountaintop, and he's going to preach this sermon. And he says, this is how you should pray. And when he teaches us how to pray, we see this phrase show up again. He says uh, in Matthew chapter 6, it says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says this, your kingdom come. This is really important. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth, just like it is in heaven. So Jesus' idea is there's a kingdom, there's a way of doing things different than the world goes about it. But his will, his mission is that that kingdom would come and happen here on earth. So what is his kingdom? What did he mean? The answer is actually on the first page of the book. In fact, Jesus, many of the prophets, the apostles in the, in the New Testament as well, often reference back to the first page of the story. And I have contended for 15 years that if we don't understand the first page of the whole story and what's happening, we are going to miss the rest of the story, parts of it, and what God has for us. And, and so we lack, um, because why? We're talking about God's kingdom. We're talking about politics. What we lack is an understanding of what it means for humans to have power and authority in the world. Would you not agree with that? We lack an understanding of what it means. And then to take that said power and authority and be mediators of God's authority. And so Jesus, even when he teaches, I, I could show you, he has a tendency to take us back to the first three pages of the Bible, often, almost no matter what he's asked. He doesn't do it directly, but, but I want to, I want to lay this out as we start this. And, and this week is just starting the conversation. We're going to really dive in. We got a great plan, but here we go. So that forces us to ask this question and I'm going to teach a little bit. How does the Bible think about humans exercising our power and authority? Does the Bible have anything to say about power and authority, us having it and how we're to exercise it? Yes. It's actually covered on the first page. This is super important. We see it on page one of the very beginning of the story. Genesis chapter one, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're just going to stop right there. Who has the power and authority? God. Type it in. God. Yahweh. Jehovah. Yes. In the beginning, God has the power and authority. He created the heavens and the earth. But in verse two, it didn't start out great. We see a problem. It says, now the earth was formless and empty over the, uh, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So again, we see God is the one who has authority. God is the one at the very beginning who has power. But at the beginning, it's dark, it's empty, it's void. In other words, it's chaotic. No, there's nothing wrong with your screen or the feed. We didn't just lose power. Rather than teach or explain, I just wanted to create a moment to capture the feeling of empty. Capture the feeling of void. Capture the emotion of darkness. Because I think some of us, if we were courageously honest, we would maybe acknowledge that this is what our soul feels like. This is what our life has experienced. 
And this is how it was in the beginning, chaotic darkness. But God is the one who has the authority over this. But here's what's cool. It doesn't end there. So if God's the one with authority, what does he do with that authority? This is the best part. And this is so important. This is all of it right here. He takes that power. He takes that authority and he asserts it over the dark, empty void. And he speaks into the chaotic darkness. In fact, 10 different speaks in the first page. And he creates a garden of life that flourishes. So if you don't get anything else, this is the bottom line for the message. This is the bottom line for the series. This is it right here. God asserts his authority over the chaotic darkness to create life that will flourish. I'm already hooked. I'm already hooked. Let, let, me, let me just say that to you again. And, and it's on the screen. But God asserts his authority over the chaotic darkness to create life that will flourish. And oh, by the way, there's more. He takes it another step further because at the end of that first chapter, here's what else God does with that power and authority. And in verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Why? so that they may rule. Wow, okay, these are important words. Rule over what? We'll rule over the fish of the sea and rule over the birds of the air and the livestock and all the wild animals and every creature that moves along the ground. So there's one creation that God created at the very end that is different than all the others. It's meant to rule over all the others. And that is us, humans. He says God is... God is saying, you're to rule over all creation. Now, he's not initially, his plan wasn't to rule over each other. He was going to do that, but we were going to rule over creation. So let's look at these, a couple of these words. This word mankind, he says, let's create mankind. That word mankind is the Hebrew word Adam. It's where we get Adam. It, it's, it's both male and female. The two are one. It's Adam. Uh, and so we don't use the word mankind very much, but what's another word for mankind? What's the word we use? Humans. Yeah, humans. We are humans. So we're made from dirt and soil. We're literally earthlings, literally. Greetings, earthlings. And so what does he do? He creates an image. He creates a version of himself. And it says, then he appoints the Adam. He appoints the man. Why? He's like, I'm going to make one thing. And they are to have my power. They are to have my authority so that they can rule in my image. Are we getting this? Are we getting this? This is so simple, but it's so important. I think this would, this would help the church so much if we got this. God created humans in his likeness as his image, and he gave us his power and authority so that we could rule. So essentially this, humans are physical representations of the original architect. We're physical representations of God. That architect, same architect, who actually has the authority over darkness and chaos. He speaks order and he speaks light and he speaks time and he speaks weather and he speaks life into existence. And what once was chaotic becomes organized order in space and time. And why does he do it? He does this because we are to rule. This is so important. Us as humans, we are God's physical representation. We are the embodiment of God's authority. And so 
Then the question, again, this is so important. Why does this matter about righteousness and justice and politics and elections and, and kingdoms? And this is what the kingdom, this, I'm explaining the kingdom. This is what the kingdom is. So we have to understand then what does God do with his power and his authority? He takes that power. I already said it. We have to know this. We're going to say it a lot of times. He takes that power to create order out of chaos, to create environment so life can flourish. This is what we are to do with power and authority. Assert and insert ourselves into chaos, darkness, void, empty, so that we can see life that flourish. And then he takes that and he plants an image, us, his image, and he appoints the human species to do the exact same thing on God's behalf. This is the deal. And so uh, growing up as a kid, my dad was a big gardener. He, like half of our backyard was a garden. He, we had stuff everywhere. We had raised beds. And what was fascinating to me was that um, without doing anything, without trying, uh, would stuff grow in my dad's garden? Inevitably. Without do yeah, yes, it would. There would be some seeds. There'd be some weeds. God put the, there's so much potential in the world that growth just happens. But here's what's crazy. When my dad would assert his rule and his intelligence and his authority and his education over that garden, there would be less weeds and there would be more produce and things would grow in rows and they would grow more. Why? Because he had the ability to work it and take care of it so that more fruit would be produced. Uh, he harnessed its potential. God wants to harness the potential of life in everything he created, and he's choosing us to do it. Our jobs as humans is to harness our potential to help other people flourish at life. We could be done right now. I have a lot more to say. We're, but we could be done. That's it. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is the ultimate power and authority creator who put an image like him, the embodiment of his physical and his emotional and the embodiment of his as a power and authority. And he says, now do exactly as I do. Make Insert yourself into chaos and darkness and make life that will flourish. The reason I'm so passionate about this, because some of you, I just made sense of 50 years of religion in 20 minutes. Like, no, this was never explained to me this way. I, I, I've been carving this out myself for the last 15 years, and I'm listening and reading really smart people. But this, this helps me to know my role on the earth and in the kingdom. So does the job description of the gardener who asserts his energy and, his, and his, what he has into the, the situation so that more life can come and it can flourish. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we already read about it on page one. God brings order in life, how he speaks it into existence. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this way, but we as human beings, we have this potential and capability to do something no other creation does. There's no other creation that goes into a new space and makes more life and innovates and creates. Yes, they can produce, they can multiply, they can reproduce, but nobody goes in and says, I'm going to take something that never was and created except for humans. I mean, just for some examples, look, the pyramids, like elephants aren't doing that. A group of ants can't get together and build a pyramid. Uh, I mean, the Eiffel Tower, another one, these are just unbelievable. The Golden Gate Bridge, San Francisco, uh, cities with skyscrapers and, and innovation and technology. We even figured out how to go 30,000 feet above the air and fly at 400 miles an hour to get anywhere in the world. If you would have told anybody in the history of the world, minus the last 100 years we would do this, they would be like, there's no way. If you would have told anybody that we would, no way. Why? Because we have this God-given ability to go into a new space and create and innovate and, 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 and make things happen and, and nurture, especially and harness the potential. Why? So that life can flourish. It's our God-given ability. No other creation does this. 
So then we have to ask this next question. How does God exercise his rule and his authority over the world according to page one of the Bible? How does, and go ahead and answer, how does he exercise his rule and authority? Through humans. Yeah, that's right. Through us. He says, here, take my power and authority, mimic me, and do what I do. He, God is so overjoyed with what he created that he wants to share his existence with us. He creates this incredible environment to share life, share beauty, share existence. He's like, I want you to have it. And what he wants us to do is mimic him and go and do the same thing. This is why there's so many reflections on the Bible throughout the Bible in Genesis chapter one, just to give you one. This is an unknown author in Psalm 33. Psalm had many authors, but many, many places in the Bible point back to this idea. Go ahead and put up Psalm 33. It says, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The psalmist says, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. We're going to talk all about that next week. Righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. This writer is saying the whole creation is just full of his potential and life and his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host, the breath of his mouth. Uh, he gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. It's poetry, it's metaphor. Then all the earth fear the Lord. Let the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. I'm not going to talk about this other than this is one of the many places in scripture that tips its cap back to page one of the Bible. So this is the, vi the vision of what human beings are and what we're according to what we're supposed to be. So for a minute, when we talk about politics, oh my gosh, we're listen, by the way, this is not the place to really have political uh, agenda. There's a separation of church and state. And if you want to go all the way back to the history of it, it was Jesus's idea originally, by the way. Um, but I want to give you a, a literal and root definition of politics. I know some of you are like, if he says one thing that triggers me, I'm about to get off this and jump on to pastor so-and-so. That's fine. But I, th I think you're going to want to hear this. So when we talk about politics, you have to understand this. Politics is just a Greek word. A Greek word. This is so important. If you get this, it's like, oh, the light bulb. Holy Spirit, help the light bulb. Come on. Politics is a Greek word. And the root word for the, the word politics is this word polis or polis, which is where we get the word city, metropolis. It's, it's that word. So that's the root word. So the Greek word, this is where we see it first in history. Politikos, as we have here, is literally answering this question. This is what the best, this is what the best historians and, and brilliant minds have kind of come together. This is politics at its essence. What, this is so good. What are the conditions that make life good for a group of people who commit to living in a close environment together. That is politics. What are the conditions to make life good so that life can flourish for people who live nearby? What are those terms? What are those conditions? How are they going to treat each other? How are they going to get along? So you maybe never thought of it this way, but you could basically say that Genesis chapter one is basically political theology. This is how we treat each other. And this is and here's a bunch of questions that are answered on page one. Who created it? Who's behind it? Who's in charge? Who lives in it? And what's our responsibility? It's all covered right there in page one. So what are we called to do? We're called to rule and subdue, and we're supposed to do it in a way that promotes and maintains righteousness and justice. Do not miss next week. So important. You're going to learn two uh, Hebrew words that hopefully you never forget. So this is beautiful. This is euphoric. It's like, oh, this sounds awesome. Well, here's the question. If you read the book, how long does this last? <laughs> Two pages. Two pages. That's it. Long story short, humans are given a choice about how we're going to go about using that power and authority, how we're going to go about ruling and subduing. And so we have two options. Are we going to stay hands off and, and defining good and evil and trust the, the creator and the architect to do that? Or 
Because we were, uh, because we were going to rule and create and subdue, are we going to, we're going to have to make decisions about what's good and what's not good. So are we going to uh, let God's definition be the definition or are we going to seize authority, seize autonomy? That's what the tree represents in the story is a choice. Am I going to trust God's wisdom or am I going to do it my way? Am I going to trust God's wisdom for redefining and defining what's good and evil? Or am I going to take the independence afforded to me, the autonomy, and define good and evil for myself as I go throughout building God's world? So I'm going to build God's world, but I'm going to kind of make up the rules for myself. This is where the problem goes. And so how does the story go? It doesn't go well, right? Humans rebel. They define good and evil on their own terms. It quickly ends up in the fracture of a marriage and then a family and then a murder of a brother. And the brother who's a murderer goes and starts a city. And that city becomes known for violence and, and murder where it rains. And they, people that live in that city, a guy named Lamech writes a poem about how violent he is. And, and that leads us to this place where there's the city of Babel and Babylon in Genesis chapter 11. And that's where the story goes is to Babel and Babylon. And so you, here's what the problem. Early on in the story, we see from the beginning, and this is happening today. We have image bearers who were supposed to rely on God's wisdom in their politics, in defining how we're going to live together and in creating what's good and evil for the better of the men of the community. And you end up as Babylon, a whole bunch of people doing whatever they want for themselves, completely ignoring God. And where does the story go from there is that God says, man, we got to choose a family. I'm going to choose one family through which I'm going to restore my blessing. I'm going to restore my politics. I'm going to restore my kingdom. I'm going to bless that family. They're going to become a nation. More on that next week as well. And then through that, we're going to try to hit reset and show the world what it's like when you trust me and you live according to my way. And so that family grows. They grow really big time. And they end up to the point where they're looking for food. And they have to go to another country to find food. And they go to say it if you know it, where do they end up. Egypt. Yes. This is really important. How did things go for them in Egypt? Well, it went good for a little while at first. But then things went really, really bad. And this is so important. It's Egypt in Exodus is the first biblical depiction of a corrupt superpower. It's the first biblical depiction of a corrupt superpower. Follow me what I mean by that. It's the first elaborate depiction of politics gone wrong in the Bible. And what do you have? You have a king who has this immigrant population being fruitful and multiplying. And the first thing that this king thinks is not, how can I exercise my authority and my power so that life can flourish for everyone? He sees these immigrants as not us, and he thinks to himself, national security threat. And so he enslaves these people and harnesses them towards his own economic interests, popularity, and to perpetuate his power and his authority. Rather than give it away and use it, he harnesses the weak so that he can gain more power and authority. And in his power, he so redefines what's good and evil that somehow it becomes good to start killing the immigrants off in the interest of economic security and the safety of his people and his tribe. And so slowly genocide begins over the entire nation of Israelite people. And it is a very real and literary depiction of the world that you and I know now here in, in this world. That's where the story goes. And we see this as, as we bring things to a close. We see the problem. 
how far things have trended the wrong direction. In Exodus chapter five, at the beginning of the story, if you don't know that king's name is Pharaoh, Moses is, is an appointed leader of the Israelites to be on God's behalf, his, his rule and his, his rescue. And so here's, uh, Moses has to go to Pharaoh. And we see this in Exodus chapter five. It says, afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord of God of Israel says. Let my people go so they may have a festival to me into the wilderness. So important. Verse two, watch this. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord. Who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Why would I do that? He, I think he says, yeah, I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So basically we go from the garden where a rebellious humanity ends up in Babylon and now in Egypt and the first major corrupt superpower is in charge and it's all rooted in a ruler, watch this, a ruler who won't acknowledge that the creator God is actually his authority. They've fallen so far, he says, I don't even know God. Follow this to page one. He has forgotten or never knew that he was actually just an image of the actual power, of the actual creator, of the actual authority. He's forgotten that he's the image and thinks he is the reality. And this is where we get ourselves into trouble. When we think we are the power, we are the authority, and we harness it for ourselves, we get politics and life and the kingdom. And remember, Jesus said, your kingdom come. This is what he wants. But here's the tension. He says, who is Yahweh? And so he elevates his own security and his own power above the heavens. It's a picture of humanity gone completely off the tracks. where killing people other people in the name of his, his interest somehow becomes good. <laughs> and if you, don't, if you don't know how the book of Exodus goes, God basically says, okay, you want to play hardball? Let's play hardball. And uh, who do you think wins that? The creator God, the real authority. It's like this showdown and, and it's pretty dramatic. And you see in Exodus 15, the Israelites are reminded of something they learned at the beginning of page one. There's, they sing this beautiful song in Exodus 15 and they were, they were reminded the Lord the creator, the architect, he reigns forever and ever. Who's the true king of the nations? They're reminded who's really in charge. Creator God. This is politics. This is all about how we live and how we treat each other. This is so important. I want to get this. I wrote this this way. The biblical narrative is essentially about God creating a world where he wants to rule through human beings, but Human beings have declared independence and we redefine what is right and wrong based on my personal and my tribal interests, even if it comes at the expense of your interests and your tribe. And when we begin to do that, we create death in the world. We create violence. We create chaos, darkness, empty, void. We create the opposite of righteousness and justice. And so God's purpose and his plan was to share his creation and share himself with the world. That was the plan. This is the plot twist. And God's rule and authority over creation would be mediated. We're to be mediators of God's authority and his power. We're to be his example. But now we've declared independence from God. We don't need you. We don't recognize you. We don't want to submit to your rule. We want to become our own rulers. And what does this result in? It results in corrupt superpowers, in things in, like in Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. Exodus 15 and Babylon and Persia and Assyria and Rome and Hitler. Pick one, pick one. 
where we miss the beginning of the very beginning of the story, the essence of power and authority is given to us. And so we're going to actually leave you on a cliffhanger this week. When you hear the beginning of the story, then we have to ask, well, what on earth is God going to do? Well, it sounds pretty hopeless. It sounds pretty bad. What's the plan? They're in Exodus and he's superpowered. We don't understand authority. What is we going to do? Well, guess what? God had a plan. And I'll, I'll spoil it for you, but you have to come back next week. His plan was number one, to appoint a family that lived differently than everybody else. Number two, he was eventually going to send a version, the actual real version of himself, his son, Jesus, to show us what it was like and pay the price for all of our mistakes. And then he was going to begin a new political community called the church, if I can say it that way, that we treat each other very differently, that would widespread throughout the world until Jesus came back to rescue us and rebuild what was started in the garden. Jesus came as an image that is the embodiment of God to restore humanity through a family that began with Adam or Adam, and it ends with us. And Jesus did it perfect, and he's our example, and he offers himself freely to anyone to say, hey, would you want to reconcile your life, your thinking, your perspective, to understand what it means to hold power and authority and what to do with it? And that's what we're gonna talk about the next couple weeks as we talk about thy kingdom come. So a couple questions as we close. Are you letting God be the ultimate authority and power in your life? Are you letting him define what's good and evil? Maybe are you yourself experiencing chaos and darkness and, and void and empty? Well, the best news is at the page one, we see at the very second verse that God always inserts and asserts himself into the chaos to bring order where life can flourish. And if you are, if you are in a place in your life where your life is not flourishing and you say, I need to turn back to God, you can click on the banner right now and God will assert himself into, with your permission, by you giving him permission, you saying, God, I submit myself to you. I want to, I want to put Jesus back on the throne. I want to put him on the throne. I want to accept his way. We'd love to pray with you. We got some videos we're going to send you. You can do that right now. If you're experiencing that, I want to pray for you and God will come in and he will take your chaos and your darkness and he will create life that will flourish. It's all he knows how to do. For those of us who know Jesus, here's another question. Are you taking your God-given power and authority and are you chasing down and asserting yourself into darkness, using your power and authority so that light and life can flourish for those who aren't experiencing it. Know this. Number one, Jesus is interested in you. He's interested in your life. Your life matters. He wants you in on his story. He wants you to be a part of his kingdom coming, but he wants it first to come in your life so then it can come through your life. And so if you don't know Jesus, step one is saying yes to him. Step two is saying, help me be more like you. Because he's not just interested in you, but he's interested in your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and all the people you have influence with. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to you and how can you respond? Maybe it's saying yes to Jesus. Maybe it's asking him to bring life. Maybe it's saying, God, I need to use my power, authority, influence, whatever you've given me to be an image bearer who goes into darkness, who goes into chaos and helps life flourish because it is who you made me to be. Let's pray, God. Thank you for your story. I thank you. I, I just, I love this so much. I like, I love it so much. I'll never get tired of this part of the story. God, I pray that we would be reminded of who we are. I pray that we would be reminded of, uh, or maybe, maybe we would be educated for some of us for the first time that we've never seen it. God, would you do a radical transformation in our worldview and our perspective right here and now by the power of the spirit that we would see ourselves as, as your image bearers, as somebody you love so much that you share your creation and humanity with, and then you invite us on this journey to do and be like you. 
God, for those of us who have never experienced a life submitted to you that are saying, yes, God, I pray for anybody just turning their life over to you right now, that they would experience your freedom, your light, your, your life that flourishes. God, for anybody who's experiencing just the void and the empty and the dark, God, that you would come in and that life would flourish. And as it does, God, that they wouldn't plunder and hoard it to themselves, but that we would also be a part of that in somebody else's story. And God, for others of us who claim to know the Bible, who claim to be followers of Jesus, God, would we be reminded that you have not called us just to have a belief system, but you have called us to do what you did at the very beginning of the story, which is find darkness and pain and chaos and void and empty and assert our power and authority so that we can help see life flourish for the vulnerable and the left out. Speak to our hearts. Remind us, God, that your kingdom is not of this world. Help us to be on the right side of your kingdom coming, your, willing, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And start with me. In Jesus' name, amen.